Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 113 with Robin Chase of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan, and I'm coming to you live from hometown, homegrown, born and raised Melbourne, Australia. So what's happening in my world? Um, I mentioned to this, you guys before in some previous episodes when I give you a little update kind of documenting the journey, I guess, because uh, I started Founder, what, three and a half years ago, and and uh, it's come a long way in three and a half years, and uh, right now we're going through some growth pains, and uh, I wanted to share with you a recent takeaway that I think has been incredible for my growth and progression as I'm making this transition from Founder to CEO, and we start to hire people. And, uh, and that transition is when you're looking to scale up your company, uh, you know, and you transition from solopreneur to building out a team, you can only take the company so far by yourself. And, uh, you know, you have to, you know, get more help and build out a team. And I think what's really critically important when you do that is it's your responsibility as a leader to show every single person, every single individual in your team what success looks like. Because if they don't know what success looks like, how will they know, you know, if they're meeting expectations? Um, And so this is why it's incredibly important that you set goals uh, for every individual in your team and you track those goals and um, you show them what success looks like. It's your responsibility as a leader. And I'm learning a lot 
lots and lots and lots about leadership and how important it is. And I want to start actually bringing in more experts around this topic because I think it's incredibly important uh, as, as, as a founder and as you make that transition. So that's what's been happening in my world. Now let's talk about today's guest, Robin Chase. Uh, she's an extremely successful founder and entrepreneur. She started a company called Zipcar, uh, which is, and still to this day, is the largest car sharing company in the world. And uh, this company actually was acquired by another company called Drivi. And uh, it's been absolutely incredible uh, what she's done. Uh, and it's another founder and entrepreneur that has disrupted the sharing economy. Uh, if you check out last week's episode, we spoke to Casey Fenton from Couchsurfing.com. And uh, this is another amazing entrepreneur and founder that has disrupted an industry through utilizing the sharing economy. So uh, one thing that Robin shares with us is she really goes back to the roots of how she started this company, how she grew it, how she scaled it, the marketing tactics and strategies she used, leadership, team building, you name it. She doesn't hold back. And this is a really, really in-depth episode that I know you're going to absolutely love. So if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to check out the magazine. Do check out the blog. Do check out our website, foundermag.com. It's where all the fruits of our labor is. All right, guys, now let's jump into the show. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? My current job or past jobs or just starting up companies' jobs? Yeah, let's just let's let's start with uh, Zipcar. Um, I think so. My co-founder is was my six-year-old's best friend, and she was German, and she had been at home on vacation and had seen a shared car across the street, and she came back to Boston and and chatted with me because I had had a business background. What's interesting to me, if I think about this from an entrepreneurial perspective, is Zipcar is now the largest car sharing company in the world, and it is an idea that we didn't even invent. We just executed it way better than other people. So um, I think there's a lot of interesting things that happen in other countries that are steerable in a very lovely way. And so I, w- I encourage people to um, think about that and what I saw, and I, I joked that I had a light bulb that went on over my head when she told me about it, that this was in the fall of 1999. And I thought, wow, sharing a very specific resource among lots of people easily is exactly what the internet is made for. And this is what wireless will make possible, getting that reservation from the internet directly to the car. And that this is what I personally want to have that I had three children and a husband and one car, and I lived in a city, and I wanted a car sometimes, but I definitely did not want to own another car. So I look at this and I think I was the right person at the right time to hear that idea. It really did jump out at me, and I, I loved it from the first I heard of it. And I, if I think of other, of other people, I do think that individuals' personal life experiences make them the right person to be doing certain things. And so instead of trying to be who you are not or start things that are very far from you, think about problems that are within your life and that you 
see and are irritated by and um, try to solve those. Awesome. So you scratched your own itch. Definitely. And, and it's one I hadn't realized that I had, but when I heard about it, I thought, oh, yeah, I want a car by the hour and by the day that takes 15 seconds to get. Yes, that's what I want. But then, of course, making that happen was not so quite as easy as I had imagined at that moment. I see. So uh, can you tell me, um, you mentioned that you had previous background in business. What were you doing before you founded Zipcar? Um, so I had gone to business school at MIT 10 years earlier, and I had been doing a lot of work in international public health. So I had been, I felt as an individual, I felt comfortable doing operations and, I, and marketing and dealing with buying things and paying for things and keeping general ledgers and accounting. So all of my, when I started Zipcar, I thought, wow, all of my life experience is coming to bear on making this particular startup. And in that precise year in which I started, I actually had um, not been working because I have three children. And during rearing of these children, I sometimes took off entire years. And sometimes I worked part-time and sometimes I worked full-time. And when my co-founder came up with this idea and said, what do you think about this car sharing idea? Um, it was a year in which I had just finished taking a year off and I was exactly at that moment looking to do a startup. I had been thinking of different things and it was just really well-timed. Hmm, I see. And how did you get started? Like you said that, that this idea existed in other places, but how did you particularly start? Like, tell, tell us about, you know, how you built like one of the, like, like the largest. Uh, okay, so here is, here's an amazing story that um, my co-founder in the fall of 99, we sat at a cafe. She said, what do you think of this idea? And then I spent three months um, writing a business plan and doing some financial modeling and seeing what was out there. And in December, I met with the dean of my business school at MIT, and I had decided to meet with him. He was the first outsider that wasn't, you know, a friend to say, what do you think of this idea? And I sent him a, we'd given him a four-page executive summary. When we met with him, he said, wow, this is an amazing idea, and you should be doing it three times as fast and raising three times as much money. You should really make this big. And so it was a moment of, high anxiety and I walked around the house for three days thinking, oh, did I really want to take this on? My children were six, nine, and 12. And um, I decided, yep. And so in January, we incorporated. Now here's the timeline that is remarkable. So we incorporated in January of 2000. I raised $50,000 in February and we were three days from launch in June when I raised another $25,000. So to repeat, we launched the company within six months, having only raised $75,000, and I'm not an engineer, and it was 16 years ago when all the things you can do on the internet did not exist. There's no you know, shopping cart that you can just load on. There's no beautiful graphs. There's no website in a box. There was none of that. We had to do it all ourselves, and we launched that company, as I say, in six months with $75,000. So I look at that, and I think that is amazing. It's a miracle. I don't know how in heck. It's just a crazy thing. And then we did go on to spend a lot more money over the subsequent months. So if I'm precise about how we did that, 
so two things is one, I did work 12 and 14 hour days, six days a week. And I did do as much as I possibly could myself. So I did write the text for the website. I did take the photographs that were going to be on the website. I did talk to the banks about letting us do things. I did try to do the fundraising. I did, you know, the marketing. I did every piece. And I enlisted friends at an hourly wage that was low to do spot things. So um, that $75,000 that we raised was spent entirely on engineers, I will say. Mm. We had a few, we put, I had one car that we started with that I got the way everyone gets a car. We were paying $300 a month for this lime green Volkswagen Beetle. And we talked, today there's this idea of doing something as a minimum viable product. Yes. And that was not a concept when we were doing this in 2000, but let me tell you, that's what we were doing. So this first car, that was our little beta car, it was a Volkswagen Beetle named Betsy. I named it, we named it Betsy. All the cars were named. As I said, we were paying $300 a month for it, and I was paying that. And when people went to the website, zipcar.com, all, they would see a calendar for that car, and they could make a reservation if it was free. And that reservation, that calendar on the car, had nothing to do with the car. So the car was parked in front of my house. You'd walk to the street in front of my house. You'd walk up the back garden. You'd walk onto the porch. There was a glider on the porch and you would lift up the pillow and there was the car key and you would take that car key and walk back out to the car and in the glove box was a piece of paper that would say start time stop time start odometer reading and stop odometer reading and people would take the car out for wherever they reserved for park it back in front of my house fill out the form and then return the key to underneath the pillow so we did that with one car and 22 people for six weeks and then we launched the company with four cars. So I got three more. Mm. And um, the only thing that was different then was that you would use this proximity card to unlock the door. But to this, this minimum viable product, if you had owned that company's proximity card, it would have unlocked the door. Like if you held that card on <laughs> the windshield, it would unlock. And I had the keys dangling from the steering column just as we have them today. But if you had seen those keys and you had taken a brick and broken into that car, you could have started that car and driven away. So it was, what is the least I need to expend in order to prove that people are interested in cars by the hour, that you don't need to have an attendant walk around the car and instruct them to do things and say whether it's good or bad. That, so we proved that point and we started to have as quickly as possible, we had real customers paying real money and we could start learning about all the things we needed to learn about. And then my next company, which was a ride-sharing company, um, a long-distance ride-sharing company, I thought at that time, I thought, oh, I'm really clever. I know a lot about trans- transportation. I know, you know, I'm going to make this, this fancy website. And we spent a lot of money because I could now raise a lot of money. So I spent a lot of money building this first website. And it was way 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 too clever and by the time I had hit consumers I had way overbuilt it and we spent the first three months unbuilding and making it simpler and simpler and simpler because I had overdone it and so I had not learned my lesson about minimum viable product as I say it was not it was not an idea so when we think about what is the smallest thing that you can do to start your company 
whatever you think it is, it's smaller than that. It's even smaller than what you think is the least you have to do. So just just going to this ride-sharing company called GoLoco, I would have thought that at a minimum to share a ride, you would have to put in the time of day you're leaving and the time of day you're going to get there and you know origin and destination and how many seats you had to rent and a price. That was too much. People are not interested in putting all of those details in. They just want to put in, I'm going to New York, period. So it's a very funny thing that what we think is the least is not the least. So when you're doing these startups, you want to get as close to a customer as fast as you can so that you can start learning from real people and not what's going on in your mind. Mm, I see. So in the early days, how did you get your first thousand customers with Zipcar? Um, I'm I'm laughing that um, we did it. We did it the guerrilla marketing way. You know, we had postcards were six cents each to print. Yes. In bulk, and one of my hourly employees would take a hole punch, and he would put a a hole in the corner, and then he would take a wire tie, and he would. He would, in a guerrilla fashion, take you know fifty postcards with a wire plastic wire tie and attach them to subway stairs. And I would be wow. taking the subway, saying, "Oh my God, there's my customer," you know. And so, yeah, there were flyers, and we would hand leaflet as people got in and out of subways and on the streets. And I was also monitoring how people actually joined the company. And so there were the three ways. That people, most people joined the company was one, they saw a car or its parking space. And that had been me. Back in 2000, we were the first people to ever put a sign on a car. And everyone said, no one will drive a car if you put a sign on it, you know, a logo. And that they'll feel like they're in a pizza delivery truck. And no one did it. And I said to myself and to my staff, no, we're going to build a company which people are proud to drive and proud to be part of that club. And they'll feel cool and urban and hip and they will be happy to do it. So we put a logo on the car. Um, the second way people would hear about it was through PR and press. So I did a ton of press, every opportunity I ever could do. That was, so that was free. And the third way that people would hear about it was someone told them. And the reason someone would talk about it is that I always gave people something to talk about. I would try to surprise and delight. And so our service was great and it was fantastic and if we made a mistake we would correct it in such a way that people would want to talk about how fabulous we were that we had corrected the mistake in this amazing way like if you think about anything that you buy you you most of the stuff we buy is because a friend told you it was great and so really that is the way to get new customers is to have existing companies customers love it so much that they talk about it all the time and that's how you get your most customers so it was not money everything we did was not money I see. And when it's um, like, since you've, you know, exited the company, uh, would you be able to give us um, some, like some stats or some numbers around like how many users um, at, when, when, when you left and, and you guys were acquired? Um, well, so Zipcar went public and when it went public and now Avis bought them and that's a public company. So today, as I understand it, only from looking at these public numbers, I think Zipcar has a million users using 13,000 cars that are parked across North America, major cities, and in the UK with a couple of outposts in Paris, Vienna, and in Spain. I mean, also 300 university towns across the US. So most major metro areas, 
in North America and parts of the UK. Wow, that's really impressive. And I'm curious, yeah, um, when when you went uh, public, how many staff did you have? I think there may be 450, something around there, give or take. Mm, I see. And when you were growing the company, how did you how did you build your team? How did you manage manage people to scale? Because that's something that's not particularly very easy. Um, so if we're talking about startups right now and with the people who are possibly listening to this, um, what's very interesting about going from yourself and your idea to a company that's actually running with, you know, 10, 20, 40, 60 staff is that it's an incredible transition because when you're doing a startup, you're doing everything yourself and you, of course, know how to do things best and know all the details yourself. And then as you hire people, you are having to really let someone else be the expert. And that's a very difficult thing in the beginning because you think, I'm the one who's been thinking about this. I'm the one who's been doing it. And it's kind of scary to imagine anyone could be doing it better. So my first thing to say is, as a very, very early company, and and you as an individual always, you should really know what you're not good at and hire quickly to be complementing your skills. So the very first hires are people who are doing things that you don't know how to do, that you're not as good at. Um, so that now you're getting, you know, instead of one person, now you have two sets of expertise and then three. And in these early days, I was also very struck by the fact that if you think of people's resumes, young people in particular, that, you know, at the very bottom, it says hobbies, you know, I am good at skateboarding, and I used to do pizza delivery, and I'm interested in music and funny mechanics. I mean, all of those crazy small details are going to be useful when you're doing a startup, because there are thousands and thousands of details that have to be done. And all of those networks and life experiences and funny little talents are things that you need in these startups. So it was interesting to me that if I thought of these first people, I, I was really hiring people who were can-do and had lots of talents. And I, at one point, I was using a headhunter for something, mm. and that headhunter was interviewing me to find out the corporate culture. So he had asked me, Robin, if you were to buy a house, would you be hiring, hiring contractors to fix it up for you, or would you fix it up yourself? So I think of entrepreneurs as people who are ones who are saying, I can do that, or I will do that myself, and that you don't have the money to be hiring out. And so all the people you hire in the early days have got to be problem solvers that are going to scrabble together. Let me figure out how I can do that myself, because you don't have any money. So all of the first hires should be can-do people who think about how to get the job done. I don't know how to do this thing. I go do this research. I go figure it out. I go get it done. And I think I said this before, but I want to reiterate, it's a really good idea to be hiring people hourly before you hire them full time, because each one of these first employees, you're only having one, you only have five, you only have seven. They are so critically important that you, you don't have time to make a really big mistake because it's one fifth or one seventh of your entire workforce. So by hiring people hourly, you know, can they do these things? Do we have good chemistry? Are they a good fit? Are they a can-do person before you make that commitment? So you're less likely to make mistakes. I was also talking to someone else who gave me another piece of advice I thought was really good, which was that you want to hire, in addition, people who share your values. 
again, these are people that you have to trust their decision-making when they're not next to you or you're not within earshot. And if you're doing a startup, there are a lot of things that are novel. There are new circumstances, new ideas, new, new ways you have to, new things you have to think up on the fly. And you need to be able to be really comfortable that the people who are making these decisions share your values around how you're going to treat people, customers or suppliers, or what kind of deals you're going to cut or not cut, that they really have to share your value system. And you need to be able to trust that they will. So if they make a decision on the fly, um, it may not be the one that you liked, but it might it would be one that you respected, that you respect how their thought process and the fact that you can understand, you trust them. So you've really got to trust and respect these early hires. And if you don't, those are the people that you fire right away because you have to have them. It's too small a company to be making big mistakes. Mm, I see. Awesome. Well, look, we have to work towards wrapping up, Robin, but um, I want to talk about your book, Peers, Inc. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book and and the whole thought process around how people and platforms are inventing the, the collaborative economy and reinventing capitalism? So if I think about why and how Zipcar succeeded way back in you know 2000 and the kinds of companies that I'm seeing succeed in the world today, all of the companies that exist, and if I were talking to, and I do talk to young entrepreneurs, I think there's three components, three building blocks of companies. One is they're tapping into excess capacity and they're building a platform that enables and harnesses this excess capacity and they're inviting in the participation of people outside the company. So a very dumb example quickly would be Airbnb. So Airbnb is tapping the excess capacity that exists in people's own homes, and they built a platform to make it incredibly simple to get at that, and they are growing by inviting other people to co-invest onto their platform. So if we think of these companies like Twitter and Facebook and your founder magazine and all of the things that are cool today, Skype, Wikipedia, um, the massive online open courses, OkCupid, TransferWise, uh, all these companies, eBay, Etsy, they are all tapping into excess capacity on a platform for participation and inviting the co-investment of others. So this book is describing that reality. And then there's a chapter on how to build one of these yourself and how if for other, then there's a chapter on if you're a big company, how you would do it. And if you're government, how you would do it. But how this, if I think about what I call now industrial capitalism, the old way of extracting the most value out of people and assets was to build a very strong barrier around your company. And it was very clear what was inside the company, what was outside the company. We did this with patents and trademarks and copyrights and certifications and, and employee expertise. And that used to be the way to get the most out of things. But today, the internet exists, and we can tap lots of small parts and people and, and, and assets very, very easily without transaction costs. So today, the best companies are those that are open and shared networks and assets and people. So if we think about, it's unclear today 
who owns the asset? It's unclear today. Are you an employee or are you not an employee? You know, is this personal time or commercial time? Like all of these things are now very um, mixed up. And that's because that is the way to get the most out of things. So sharing an asset makes that asset more efficiently used or new value can be extracted or more shared minds are smarter and more creative and more innovative than a few people inside a company. This is the future and every company that can become just a platform very efficiently shaped and leveraging assets and people and minds and data outside the company is the future. So that's what this book, and it's this collaboration that I'm calling Peers Inc. This new collaboration between people and platforms or devices and platforms or data and platforms. And I think of it as the collaborative economy, which just trying to open people's minds more when we think about the sharing economy, which Zipcar would be the cornerstone of, people are kind of stuck on this physical asset shared between two people. But what I'm trying to get people to understand is, no, no, this is happening in a much, much larger way. It's not just physical assets, but virtual data, time of day, experiences, networks, processes, keystrokes that are being harnessed and multi-purposed and to create new services and new products and new ways of living. And that really is the way forward. Mm, I see. Awesome. Well, look, um, I'll, I, I just wanted to, to say before we wrap, is there any final words of wisdom? Where's the best place uh, people can find you if they want to find out more or purchase your book or anything? Um, so I'm, I'm on, uh, you know, people can talk to me via Twitter. I'm at RM Chase. And if you are building a company like this or want to build a company like this, I really do recommend this book, Pure Zinc. People absolutely love it. I had this great VC comment that this book had more startup ideas than any book I'd ever read. It's a really great holistic manual. It's a pleasant thing to read. And I urge people to um, really think about their own set of circumstances and what needs to be changed in the world that they're in and to think of themselves as the change maker. And so I think the world actually is, I wouldn't say they're oyster. There's a lot of challenging things right now, but people have an amazing, amazingly new powers bringing together and using other people's platforms to create new things. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.